Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 10 Writing With All Your Senses The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism where not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The tenth and final episode of the Feminism Under Corona chapter follows a conversation with poet, playwright and theatre director Koleka Putuma. Author of the poetry book Collective Amnesia from 2017 and the play No Easter Sunday for Queers, also from 2017, she is founder and director of Magnano Media, a multidisciplinary project that produces and supports the work and stories of black queer artists and queer life. Her book Amnesia Collectiva, in its Spanish translation, arrived in my mailbox thanks to Lua Koderk, on the last day of the year 2020. It was the first book I read in 2021, consciously prolonging its reading for several days. Even though books never end, sometimes we don't want to get to the last page too quickly. Weeks before, thanks to Lua's activity on Twitter, I got to know the video Normal from 2020. A collaboration by Koleka Potuma with filmmaker Irene Moray and dancer Fatou Afrikangyal for the online project A Vocabulary for the Future at the CCCB in Barcelona. This audiovisual work leaves in suspense the meaning of a concept as problematic as normal, when on the occasion of the pandemic it is used as an ideal state of what was normalized but shouldn't be normal neither before, now nor after. There is an idea about poetry that stuck with me for the last few years. It refers to poetry as a form of writing that is prior to capitalism and, consequently, is both political and resistant to the privilege of a type of reason that has become the privileged reason in Western cultures. This kind of reason uses the essay to express itself, whereas poetry can express many other forms of reason. In a conversation between the artist Cecilia Vicuña and the curator Camila Marambio, Cecilia tells Camila that poems have a knowledge that we don't have. These are some of the ideas I shared with Coleca Potuma at the beginning of our conversation, as well as some ideas that appeared in previous conversations she shared with others. In a digital encounter last year, Coleca and rapper and songwriter Shoma Josi we're talking about ways of moving the poetry industry forward. Apparently, the term poetry is not related to industrial production. However, a closer look shows that poetry is indeed a part of the industry. 
For not only books or the materials that make them up are produced, but poetry and its authors have to negotiate continuously with contracts, copyrights, royalties, dissemination and presentation processes, etc. The work of poets and the writers encompasses not only the writing itself alone, but at the same time a constant task of administration and care in order to not only understand the system of the cultural industry they belong to, but to find out how to be able to enact with it. It is for this reason that for Kuleka, poetry includes everything that makes it happen in very different ways. During the mentioned conversation, Koleka Putuma and Shoma Josi discussed the importance of curation within slam poetry events, where the written language of poetry involves voices and bodies. They mentioned the fascination and obsession with the international scene, a term that for Koleka has different meanings in different places. The international is what doesn't happen at home, she will say during our conversation. The bodies of Koleka's poetry and writing are multiple. There are the books, the bodies that read, and the bodies that listen, the bodies of the actors and the spectators, and of course the body of the author, who writes with all her senses what she then speaks out in public. In Koleka's work, the text is as important as the body and the voice or different media beyond books. Her poem Water was a very big social impact while it raised expectations beyond herself about the relationship between poetry and activism. As she points out, activism is not the responsibility or duty of the artist alone. It's everyone's responsibility. This conversation with Koleka Putuma took place at the end of January 2021. Koleka was in Cape Town and I was in Berlin. We talked a lot about poetry as a practice, as part of her early biography and as a working context. The pandemic appeared also from the social impact and political power that language holds. As we know, the very nature of a virus includes, as part of its evolutionary process, continuous transformations over time. The fact that these new variants appear in specific regions of this planet should not add national labels to the new mutations. They produce ideological implications and spread accumulated prejudices. And yet the media and many governments insist on referring territorially to processes that are beyond national identities. Structural violence against women and femicides are a pandemic long before the one produced by COVID-19. At the present time, not only do the two coexist structurally, but the current situation generally intensifies violence against women. Every three hours from 2019 is a poem by Koleka Putuma that refers to the murder rate of women in South Africa and the insufficient state and social support to end this pervasive violence. In a world that depicts so many forms of violence in graphs and statistics, poetry and words are able to speak of what numbers do not count and do not tell.
my relationship to poetry or before I started writing poetry, I guess came in two ways. The first way, I think I've spoken about this a lot publicly, um, how I was raised in the church. I was raised by, my father is a minister, is a pastor, and my grandfather, my father's dad, was also a pastor as well. So I grew up in an environment where I was raised by people who worked with text and speaking. And so there was a level of love or reverence for the word or speaking words that I grew up around. And the Bible is quite poetic as well. It's full of imagery and metaphors and stories and idioms and teachings and all these things. And that's quite poetic and philosophical. And so I grew up with a knowledge of how words could be transmitted or how words could be shared with large groups of people. I guess that was like my first introduction to poetry or the spoken word. Like most people, my introduction to poetry was then through the schooling system, through the curriculum. That introduction to poetry was terrible. I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit. I think most people in school just hated poetry because of how it was taught, how it was introduced to us, and also because of the people that we were reading. Particularly for me, when I was in school, we were reading all these dead white people and you can't really relate to the content of the work because it doesn't reflect your story or your reality in any way. I felt a huge disconnect to poetry before I started writing poetry until I came into contact with the open mic space where poets were kind of just writing to write, writing to express themselves. And that's where, I guess, for me, my relationship to writing poetry started. When I saw what poetry could do once it was spoken or once it was shared with people. I think like most creative spaces or industries, we tend to isolate a lot. You know, in the literature space, everyone knows everyone. And so everyone gravitates towards people whose works they like and people who they feel drawn to. And it's like that in the theater space as well. And it is like that in the poetry space as well. And so I guess when we were having a conversation with Shoma Jose about the poetry space and how it is that you could potentially grow or expand as a poet in your writing, as an artist, as a performer. One of the ways is to think about how other industries or other forms of creating influence your writing and the way that you are as a performer, I guess. So that um, it's not always that you're getting feedback, but you're collaborating with the same people in the same space. 
it's weird because poetry has been around for centuries and centuries, right? And yet in terms of business models and structures like that make it valid as an industry, it's sort of like an infant in relation to every other industry. When people refer to poetry, I don't think the first thing that comes to your mind, you think about it as an industry, right? Like it's still very much thought of as a hobby, as a side hustle, as the thing that you do after your actual job. But I think we are now moving into an interesting time where there are small groups of people who are thinking about how to create business models or companies or movements that can start to formulate, if I can call it like micro industries within like the poetry space. In South Africa, you have poetry movements or poetry companies who are now moving towards like educating young people and educating themselves and other poets about the business aspect of poetry. And you're right, you know, like when you say that contracts and things like that, when they're drawn up, they're never about the the other person. Contracts are meant to serve the people who draw up the contracts. Here in South Africa, specifically where there's a lot of teaching that needs to happen or that is happening around, you know, something as simple as invoicing, something like rate cards, because we don't have a standard rate card for how much you should charge for writing or workshops or things like that. And so we cannot even begin to get to a place where we can even think about having a union as poets, because there's just so many other steps that we have to build still and construct to make sure that something like a poetry industry is even considered to be a valid industry, right? For me, part of the challenge is around the education of what the, I don't want to call it a sector at this point, what the poetry space needs and how it is that poets can kind of band together and come together and create I don't want to say rigid, but a very structured document that everyone can refer to so that the industry can be unified and kind of organized. A lot of us who study at creative institutions, right, There's a lot of emphasis that is placed on creating work, making work. And then once you graduate, the pressure is on you to find opportunities, to find work, to make work so that you can sustain yourself, obviously, because there are bills to pay. I don't know what it's like in other institutions, but I think that there is a lack in learning institutions about the business aspect of being a creative And a large part of that focusing on just contracts and reading your contract and what it means when you collaborate with people on projects in terms of your IP, things like royalties, things like just because someone, let's say, is paying you 1000 euros, say, you know, we come together, we collaborate on an idea and this idea has the potential to generate other opportunities moving forward or other works, right?
there are financial implications to the work having derivatives or, or being expanded into something else. And so there's very little knowledge around what does it mean to have a negotiation about royalties, about making work in collaboration? What does it mean in terms of your intellectual property, owning your work, copyright and things like that? I think, you know, what you said is true about because the arts industries are so hard that when you do get an opportunity to work or when you do get asked to work, you are so excited. And maybe sometimes you're not even excited. Sometimes you're just like, oh my goodness, finally, like money, that you kind of jump into business exchanges without really reading the fine print, but also without really negotiating and thinking about how it is that this could benefit you just as much as the other person. There's no set progression of, for lack of a better term, succeeding in the poetry space. And I guess like maybe in other creative industries as well. In corporate, you maybe start out as an intern and then you get bumped up from being an intern to, I don't know, getting a job. And then you eventually work your way up to, let's say, the CEO position or the managing position. There just isn't like a set criteria that you can follow in poetry that will ensure that there's a progression that you can begin to fall into in terms of like crossing over from the open mic poetry session at the corner of your neighborhood and then from that poetry session on a Monday night in your little corner in Barcelona you move into a more international festival and then you move and you go and you perform let's say in Berlin or Austria or whatever. We also have this thing where you spoke about that the emerging poets and the people who are in their mid-careers and people who are established are all kind of jumbled up together. I guess the international scene differs from context to context. I mean, I guess here, like, we look at the international scene as everything that is not home or everything that is outside of home. The way that you kind of tap into that is so random, to be honest. It's random, and it's also about who's paying attention, who's looking at what particular time from the international space you know who from berlin or who from austria looks at south africa or is kind of doing their research and kind of seeing like what is relevant or who is it that they want to kind of give voice to or give a platform to I also do not want to negate how those things happen. In my case, I know that I had to build or construct an identity and a career that eventually led up to a kind of visibility that allowed for me to cross over into the international space. And so once that started to happen, whether if you go into the international space once or twice, that then starts to open up other opportunities in the international space. Europeans are wild, right, in that way, in the sense that they will attend 
most festivals, curators of festivals go to each other's festivals to see who's doing what, how are things being done. And so in that way, they kind of pick up on which poets in which countries are, are doing what. And so in that way, then multiple avenues are opened up to whoever gets invited to particular festivals. And so it, it kind of becomes like this domino effect. And so I think that that's how the thing is set up. But I can imagine that from the person who's looking at another person be it a visual artist or a poet or an actor who is active or who works in the international space, I can imagine that it looks like there's a system. There's a way that you can sort of tap into the space. If I do A, B, and C, then the result will be D, E, and F, right? But actually isn't. that true to being a creative you actually just have to like dip all your fingers and your toes in everything and hope that something sticks and then try your hand at multiple i don't know that you have to kind of expand and stretch your one talent into different avenues and pray that somewhere along the line those things will connect and they will materialize into something that as a writer you can't just sit at home and be like I just write poetry that you also have to be open to the idea of writing essays or writing comic books or writing whatever and seeing how that can kind of open up different things in other spaces. This question of the body is so interesting. I think I'm fortunate that I, one, could study theatre, that I went and did a degree in theatre. <laughs> one, that my parents allowed me to do that. But also that at the very core of like theatre is the body or it's the use of the body. So your body is essentially your instrument. Even as a director or even as a playwright, it's not necessarily about being an actor, but everyone in the theatre space has to utilise the body in one way or another. And so I think having gone through a training that's put that focus very much in the body influenced the way that I thought about myself as a poet in huge ways. The importance of taking care of my voice and how it is that I can sharpen and utilize my voice to tell stories. That the process of being a poet doesn't stop at writing the poem or at editing the poem. That it extends to how it is that we communicate poetry using our bodies or when we come into contact with other bodies, that there is a relationship between speaking poetry and people watching you speak poetry. And then also like, what does that do to the poem? Also in prepping for our conversation, I was, I found this question so fascinating because, and particularly now during like COVID, I think a lot of us have been forced to think about what is what nurtures our working 
environment, what allows us to be in the space to work and to be productive, right? I found such a deeper awareness to the body in relation to like rest or resting. And I found myself obsessing over putting the body into states of rest or resting so that it can work, so that it can produce. There's an Instagram page that I follow that I love with my whole heart. It's called The Nap Ministry. I just want to read this one post that the founder of the NAP ministry put up and they were saying, stop saying rest is a luxury or a privilege. It is not. It is a human right. The more we think of rest as a luxury, the more we buy into these systematic lies. I will never donate my body to capitalism. I will never donate my body to white supremacy. Let us remember rest as reparations, rest as a form of resistance. This work is about uplifting. Rest can help us get there. It gives us a space to embody and live in divinity. And so much about the NAP ministry is around that our imagination, that the work that we need to do as people, as creatives, is so reliant on us resting, on us indulging our pleasures and doing the stuff around the work so that when we do work, we can work, we can imagine, we can indulge our bodies in that way. And so I think for me, like my relationship to the body has become much more tender and much more, I don't know, I think of the body now not as a machine that needs to produce stuff and do things, but I think of the body now as, as a thing that needs to be taken care of, I guess. Language is so powerful. Constitutions have been constructed with language. Wars have been started with language. And so I think there isn't enough importance placed on the kinds of language that we use, you know, particularly during a time like this. I know I've been seeing this conversation online a lot about there's a plea from scientists and uh, people in the medical space to be careful about the kinds of language that we use because I'm sure you've read that there's a variant of the virus that has been found here in South Africa, right? And there's been an extensive research into the variant. And because it was reported on first here, it's reported as the South African variant. Those are the things that kind of cause xenophobia and those are the things that kind of cause people the stigmas it's also the ways that people referred to COVID when it first came out and how that was related to China and that sort of thing language is a thing that must constantly be troubled because can so easily get us into trouble in so many ways and make us think about things in ways that they are not like walking is not a privilege <laughs> like having a job is not and all those things what COVID has done here, and I guess in many other countries as well, is to really expose 
all the things that were not normal before, all the things that were not right about whatever was going on pre-COVID. Obviously, you know, we're also in a time of deep, deep, deep grief. There's a lot of loss and a lot of that is felt or accessed through social media. We are on our phones a lot. And so I've kind of put myself on a social media curfew. So now I have a curfew because my psyche has got to a point where I just need relief. And so I cannot three hours or two hours before I go to bed be on my social media and being consumed by all of this grief and loss and people's stories about how it is that they're feeling because I feel like my body is absorbing all of that and then I take all of that to bed and then it's become hard to sleep. I'm kind of thinking about so many things at the same time. So I've had to create systems for myself to protect my psyche, my emotional well-being, so that I can go to bed and wake up and live again in the morning. Listen. (laughs) I have a two-hour rule. So two hours before I sleep, I uninstall my apps, all of them. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Because reaching for our phones is so habitual, you know, like I'll reach for my phone and then when I open my phone, there are no apps. And then I'm like, oh shit, okay, I'm not allowed to pee on social media. And then I'll put my phone down. Getting rid of the apps before I sleep reminds me that I'm not supposed to be on them. And then what happens when I wake up in the morning for the first two hours, I'm not allowed to engage with my phone or with social media specifically so what i'll do is because it's such a habit i'll wake up i'll reach for my phone and then when i open it i'm like oh i don't have social media then i'll put it down i've created tangible reminders it's not sustainable anymore to be in mourning every day because i feel like that's what being on our phones is asking of us to do even if you were saying even if it's not someone close to you who has passed away or but you are seeing all these deaths and all these numbers and so in a way subconsciously you're grieving as well like you are mourning you are taking on all of this loss all of this sadness and all of this the anxiety that's going on and so at some point during the day even if it's for two or three hours your body is just needs for you to put all of that down. A few weeks ago, or I think even possibly two months ago, the president here was talking about in his 
update. They come on and they give us updates about what's going on. And he was addressing the fact that South Africa has two pandemics, the one being a health pandemic and the other one being femicide in the country. And he was talking about how, you know, the severity of the femicide issue here. One of the things that really became heightened even more when the shutdown happened, when the virus happened, was just how much women were affected in the pandemic and women who were affected by gender-based violence in this country. You started to see like the statistics of gender-based violence in South Africa are already quite ridiculous. They started to release these numbers where the national uh, helpline, call line, where people can call into to say that I need help or whatever, that went up by like a huge percentage when the virus happened. And you started to see how women and children were affected the most by one, the virus, but also two, by the lack of structural support systems that the government has failed to put in place over years or over time and so you really started to see where the gaps were and how it is that society has failed to put support systems or structural systems in place for women to I don't know, to be able to to be supported in times of crisis and so that became quite obvious during the pandemic. beautiful phrase I can't remember from where online and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember it word for word that was talking about if you have inherited generational traumas from your ancestral line right then it has to be true that you've also inherited healing practices as well or other practices that are healing especially like when you first move out of your parents house and you going to be your own person and you very determined to structure your life and your personality in ways that do not necessarily point you back to where you come from or for me anyways I kind of like had this burning need to just go away and be something else and so I held on to a memory of how it is that I constructed certain beliefs about certain things, faith, sexuality, my identity, my parents, my environment in very particular ways. And so when I started to embark on this journey of unlearning or decoding the things that I'd learned, unlearning is such an abstract term or like thing to do because the thing that you are unlearning it's not necessarily like tangible you know and so that process is not something that's like physical but in my attempt to kind of learn new things or learn something else I started to see some of the things that I I had learned how they were valuable or how it is that they contributed to my understanding of the world, or how it is that I wanted to understand the world and myself differently. Growing up, there was a lot of 
very binary ways of understanding things you know it's either like it's black or it's white or it's this or it's that either it's wrong or it's right and that's also like at the core of christianity sometimes that christianity some of it can be very much about like it's this or it's that you know and so we come to understand sexuality gender class race in those ways too particularly as if you're someone who grew up in a very like strict Christian teachings that you can kind of understand the world that way. And so coming into contact with people who think differently, but also with scholarship, with reading, you start to realize that things are so much more nuanced and that there's so much gray, you know, that like there's a whole spectrum of gender, there's a whole spectrum of faith. And there's a whole spectrum of identity. And within those spectrums, there are like so many intersections. In those intersections, there are versions of yourself that you come to learn about, that you come into as a person. I don't know. It's a journey. I mean, to talk about these things can be so weird sometimes because it sounds like you've arrived at like a conclusion, but you haven't really because you don't, you don't know what's going on. You are still becoming, you are still learning. You are still in scholarship with yourself, with other thinkers. And so what you might believe today or what you might think to be true or gospel today for you might not be so like next week. So these things are always weird to talk about because they change so much, I feel. Concepts change, people change, we change. And that's okay. Labels can be so loaded that when certain works that you put out there become more prominent than others, right? that that can generate a particular aesthetic about who you are as a creator, as a thinker. When I wrote Water or when people uh, became acquainted with the poem Water, I guess the expectation that was put on me as a writer was that I was going to be like this political poet, right? Or whatever that term means. Not that that's even a thing. Or that I was going to be this person who was going to write political poetry and whenever you write certain narratives there's the expectation that the work that you produce is always going to challenge some part of society and then there's a responsibility that's placed on artists based on those labels right things that we're going to do we're going to change the world through the work that we make or that we're going to bring about rigorous conversations and all of those things might happen as a result of the work that we make but it's not necessarily our responsibility to do so i love what nina simone says about it is the artist's duty to reflect the times for me like i like the word reflecting more than I like the word responsibility. Because like once someone makes something your responsibility, it kind of, it feels unmanageable and it feels undoable and it feels like there's a task. And it also feels like you and you alone must do that. Whereas I feel like if you are tasked with the responsibility of reflecting, that there's kind of much more freedom in that. 
that you can then have a different lens to talk about the things that matter to you or what it is that that's pressing for you and the context that you are coming from. With works like No East Sunday for Queers and Collective Amnesia, the new book that I'm working on now, I guess for me it's about, I'm asking all the time, like, what is it that I want to talk about? Like, what do I feel is urgent right now for me? What is it that I want to reflect back one to myself, but also to the people who will read the work or watch the work, whatever. I kind of feel like a responsibility for myself to reflect on what it is that I'm observing, but also to reflect back what it is that I'm observing or feeling or what's happening around me. More than I feel a responsibility to like take feminist action and like be a queer activist you know because I don't identify with those not that I don't identify but I guess I don't identify and I don't subscribe to like these duties of being a queer activist and a feminist this and then your work must do all these things and I just kind of feel like those general requirements from society to artists are just not I don't know. I just kind of don't subscribe to it because I feel like it is not possible to be everything for everyone all of the time. This is just a personal thing and I think a lot of people would agree. I think that there's a danger in writing and not reading. How else are you expanding the way that you're thinking or what else is informing the things that you are writing about. And so I never used to be this way, but now in the last couple of years, I've become someone who I have to read to be able to write. I have to know what are other people thinking. I'm sure that other people have thought about this particular concept better than me. So I want to know how it is that this particular idea has been articulated by other people in other ways. And so in kind of tapping into the ways that other people write about sex or race or pleasure or whatever it is that I want to write about, it helps me to stretch my thinking a little bit further beyond like the initial thought or the initial idea. I've fallen in love with this idea of like writing with all of your senses, writing with your whole body, writing with all of your spirituality, writing with your dreams as well, and how it is that those things accumulate on the page, and how your work is kind of informed by everything, and how that, that can make it richer. is such a weird thing a lot of who we are is is essentially memory we've constructed by things that we remember or things that we don't remember and how that informs the things that we run with i feel like i grapple with remembering remembering every single day even now as i'm writing this the second book you know just trying to jump into because i feel like memory is such an abstract thing and so how do you 
delve into it in ways that are tangible or in ways that you can articulate onto the page and then communicate that in poetry. And also when I think about certain concepts, for example, that are articulated in the poem Water, I I never experienced slavery or things like that, but sometimes I task myself with the challenge of trying to remember things through what I have been told or what I have read and then trying to piece together how it is that I am affected by memory or affected by history in the way that I now navigate the world as a black woman, as a young black woman in post-apartheid South Africa. How does memory and history affect all of the navigation that I have to do in this body right now? And so how might that affect my agency or my context or certain ways that the world looks at me and receives the things that I do and the work that I make? that I hear a lot about how I was so animated as a child, how my love for theater or words apparently started when I was a toddler. I don't remember any of that. Other kinds of memories that I have are obviously political or historical memories about South Africa. I was born in 93 and so a lot of that upheaval and a lot of that struggle are things that I don't know firsthand but you know because it's memory that's been passed down that I kind of know about things that way a lot of the times we hold on to like we believe certain memories to be ours but they're not because the story has been told to you so many times that you believe that it's a memory that you have of yourself but it's actually not it's it's because it's been told so many times There's so much about memory that illuminates. When you remember something, you bring it to the surface. Or when you remember something and you write it down or you talk about it or you document it in some way, that there's so much that you are illuminating, either about yourself or about a particular moment. When I think about memory, I just, I don't know, I kind of have like this object of something that you were not seeing before and then all of a sudden you see by you seeing it in that way, you allow others to see what it is that you want them to see or what you want them to remember. Torches kind of have those characteristics that when you put a torch on or when you put a light on, that it illuminates what it is that you didn't see before. Memory is, if it were to be personified, that it would be that, I guess, for me.
Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Instituto Susch, a joint venture with Krajina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Susch is part of Museum Susch, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found on museumsusch.ch. That's museumsusch.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Voiceover and final editing, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Susch Art Stations Foundation CH 2021.